Acts chapter 2, looking at verses 1 and 4 here. When a day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, when the pandemic first surged through Chicago about a year ago, it turned everything upside down. And many churches were scrambling to figure out what to do. And COVID-19, in my opinion, was a gift to the church because it forced every church to answer the questions, who are we? What are we called to do? And the pandemic revealed a fundamental weakness in many American churches that most churches only had one purpose, and that's the Sunday worship time. Now, it's good and it's necessary. That's why we've worked so hard to do this safely and responsibly, because God works in powerful ways when we congregate. But what happens when you take Sundays away from a one-purpose church? There's nothing else left to stand on. So with these churches, all they want to do is get back to worship. Worship, worship, worship. Give me us, give us our worship. Stop persecuting the Christians. Let me just say, no one is persecuting Christians here, okay? When they're asking theaters and museums and gyms and restaurants and even Disneyland to close their doors, the church isn't being singled out. Yet for many churches, they can't handle the pandemic. They feel like it's the kiss of death. As a matter of fact, after this pandemic is done, at least one in five churches will close their doors forever. Why is this happening? It's because the church has become a place you attend for religious services rather than a movement storming the gates of hell with the gospel. The danger of the church in every generation is that we can cease to be a gospel movement. And that's kind of where we're at today at the end of Acts chapter 1. That the church currently right now is at a standstill. So far, they've prayed a bit. They've studied the Bible. They've prepared their leadership by replacing Judas. And that is all good. But there's nothing much else happening among them or through them. They are not making any difference in the city and world around them. But this doesn't last very long. That just as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and changes everything. That as we'll see, the church starts with 120 disciples in Acts chapter 1. And by the end of Acts chapter 2, it explodes to 3,000 believers. That's a 2,500% growth. And many historians estimate that Christianity grew by 40% every decade in the first 300 years. And by 350 A.D., there were over 33 million Christians in the world. And that story still continues strong today. And Park Community Church is a part of that story. And the birth of that movement started on Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, as we understand it as Christians, is the 50 days after Christ's resurrection. But for the Jewish audience, Pentecost meant something entirely different. It was the Jewish holiday to celebrate the Harvest Festival, or it was called the Festival of Weeks. The name comes from Leviticus 23, 16. And it's on this day the people of God would bring the first sample of crops from their fields to the temple. 
And over time, this festival became associated with the celebration of God giving the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, what we're going to see in our sermon today is that how the events of Pentecost are going to take very familiar Old Testament stories and themes and retells them with the lens of the gospel to gain its greatest meaning. For example, Jesus doesn't just go to the cross on any given Friday, but Jesus is crucified on Passover, the day in which the people of God remembered how God delivered his people from slavery and how the angel of death passed over their homes because a spotless lamb was sacrificed. Jesus dying on Passover was God's way of saying, Jesus is that spotless lamb. He has always been that spotless lamb. He is the greater reality that all these events pointed to. In the same way, Jesus has his church wait 50 days for Pentecost to arrive. He's waiting specifically for that day. And as good Bible students, we have to ask, why does he make them wait? Because he could have given the Spirit at any time he wanted. He chooses Pentecost because God is pointing to a greater redemptive reality to help us understand the Holy Spirit's work through the church. So with our time today, I want to show you the significance of the Spirit's work on Pentecost and what it means for us today. And here are the four points, the four observations I want to work through. First is this, the Spirit breathes life to the church. Second, the Spirit anoints every believer for ministry. Third, the Spirit sends the church globally. And then finally, the Spirit brings the harvest, okay? Those are the four movements we're going to have. So first... The Spirit breathes life to the church. Uh, verse 1 and 2 again. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, the first thing that we read about Pentecost is how the disciples heard a rushing wind fill the room. Now, in Hebrew and in the Greek, the word for wind is the same word that we use for spirit. You know, as a matter of fact, in Hebrew, it's pronounced rahak, rahak here. And it's one of those words that sounds exactly like what it means. It sounds like a breath that you're taking, rahak, rahak. And when you think about it, the sound of wind sounds just like a breath that you take but only longer and deeper. And actually, many in the ancient world believed that when they felt the wind, that was the breath of creation. Now, the question is, why is the Holy Spirit first described as wind? It's meant to point our eyes back to Scripture. Where else have we heard the sound of wind or the sound of breath? It's back in Genesis 2, when God created Adam. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God in this moment takes a lifeless body and breathes into this body, and Adam comes into existence. Jesus also says in John chapter 20 that the Holy Spirit will be just like this life-giving breath. John 20, 21 to 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus breathes on his disciples. He blows wind at them. Why? To illustrate how the Spirit was going to come on Pentecost. So when you consider John chapter 20, Genesis chapter 2, and Acts chapter 2, we see what God is doing on Pentecost. He is giving life to the church. Just like how he breathed life into the body of Adam, God now breathes his life through the Holy Spirit into the body of the church. And this isn't just some tiny wimpy breath. It was a breath that sounded like a rushing wind. It was powerful. It was unstoppable. And this is the kind of life God is breathing into his people as the breath of God filled your life. Now, if you're a genuine Christian, we all have the Spirit indwelling in us. That's God's promise and seal of salvation. But the Spirit's filling, indwelling and filling are two different things, right? The Spirit's filling in us is a different thing. And that can come in different degrees. You know, for example, there are different kinds of breathing. There's breathing from someone who is sick and unwell. And the breathing is often very shallow. (gasps) (gasps) that shallow breathing is not healthy. But contrast this with an Olympic athlete doing a 100-meter race that you see a close-up of their face and they're straining to run as fast as they can. And when they breathe, they're taking in in these huge gulps of air to fill their lungs. (gasps) Do you see? The sick person and the athlete, they're both breathing, but one is on the edge of death. And another one is competing for a prize. Which one defines you as a believer? Are you living in such a way that if God doesn't come through in your life, if he doesn't come through in our church, we are doomed. Our lives and our church should not be explainable to a watching world because it is the very breath of God who fills us. You know, Francis Chan, an author and missionary, said this. If it's true that the Spirit of God dwells in us and our bodies are the Holy Spirit's temple, then shouldn't there be a huge difference between the person who has the Spirit of God living inside of him or her and the person who does not? Is there a noticeable difference in your life because God has breathed life into you? The same God who breathed life into a, life into Adam is the same God now breathing his life into the church so that we can now live for him. Here's the second observation. The work of the Spirit at Pentecost is that he anoints every believer for ministry. Verses 2 and 3 here. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So there's not only the sound of rushing wind, but now fire has come upon the disciples. Again, why is the Spirit described as fire here? And it's meant to point our minds back to Scripture. And where else have we seen fire show up in, in incredible ways? There's numerous places. When God's people were in the wilderness for 40 years, God guided them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law, fire descended on the mountain. When God was commissioning Moses to go to Egypt, we see a fire on a burning bush. And in all these cases, 
fire represents God's presence. So now as we look into Pentecost, we don't see fire on a mountain. We don't see fire on a pillar of cloud. We don't see fire on a bush. His fire now rests on his disciples. And why does he do that? It's so that we would be his witnesses. Once again, we have to keep going back to Acts 1-8 all throughout this entire series because that is the verse that unpacks the whole book. And Jesus says that when the Spirit comes upon you, when it comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses. That is why the fire lands on the disciples. And this actually makes me think again of Moses' life when he encounters the fire of God in the burning bush in Exodus 3. That if you remember that story, that Moses isn't really doing much with his life. For Moses, he grew up with luxury and privileges, but then he got into some trouble, moved out of Egypt, and pretty much retired from life. So what we have is that we have a 70-year-old man living in the desert who's not doing a whole lot for God and his purposes in the world, but God comes down in fire and tells Moses, I got something for you to do. That I didn't create you to wallow in self-pity and self-absorption or to ride out your final years in the safety and comfort of the desert here while I hear my people suffering. I have heard their cries and I am anointing you with my presence to bring about their deliverance. In the same way, the Spirit comes upon the church in Acts chapter 2 because God did not create the church just to have some nice prayer meetings, to have some fellowship, some organization, maybe a little bit of Bible study here. While the world is suffering and facing a Christless eternity, God sends the fire of his presence to anoint his people to bring deliverance to those who are enslaved to sin. And what's amazing to consider here is that this fire, notice, rests on every disciple in that room. Frankly, if you thought God was going to anoint his presence on someone, it would be Peter, James, John, or the other apostles. But it says in these verses that the fire rested on each one of them. All 120 disciples in that room had fire above their heads. It fell on you, on you, on you, on you, on you, on you, and on me. Just imagine being one of the 120 disciples in that room. That you're in that room right now. Imagine it's a room very similar to this size. And then you start noticing like, whoa, well, fire is going on Kenson's head. Fire is going on Noah's head. It's going on the elder's head. It's going on the deacon's head. Whoa, it's going on to these other people's heads, their heads. And the next thing you notice, it's also on my head as well. There's only one conclusion you can make. God was anointing you and sending you to share the love of Jesus. There is not a single genuine believer in Park Community Church where God has not rested his presence on you and thus given you a purpose. That he has taken you out of your self-absorbed life and commissions you with fire to be his witness. You are God's answer to meet the greatest need of the world and that's to save others from a Christless eternity. The reason the church today has gone far and wide is because the Spirit doesn't just fall on some spiritual superstar like Moses to do all the work. The fire of God lands on every single one of us to do the ministry of Jesus with the power of Jesus. 
Here's the third work of the Spirit at Pentecost. He sends the church globally, okay? And this is verses 4 to 12 here, 4, 4 to 12. Let me read the verses. And when they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues and as the Spirit gave them utterance, verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this, at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? The Parthians and Medes and the Iliamites and the rest of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, along with Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselyte, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Okay, so on Pentecost, we see wind, we see fire, and the next incredible act is that the disciples begin to speak in different earthly languages. Not in heavenly angelic language, languages where no one understands here, but in earthly languages. Because it says in verse 8, and how is it that we, the crowds are saying this, that each one of us hear our own native language. Now, this was amazing, right? Because this isn't some sort of, like, they didn't have some sort of, like, Rosetta Stone software for people to learn languages. Or it's not as though the disciples were some linguistic scholars. The crowd realizes, realizes that these are Galileans. They should only be speaking one language. You know, they've never heard a language before, let alone speak it fluently. But once again, as you consider the details of this story, where does your mind go? Where does the Jewish mind go when you hear about all these people speaking different languages? It points you back to the Bible, specifically to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. It's at the Tower of Babel we see the height of man's rebellion and pride. By trying to build a tower to reach God and proclaim man's greatness to build man's kingdom and not God's kingdom. So God puts a stop to this and confuses them with multiple languages and it becomes a crazy house, a madhouse. And people are forced to stop building the tower and they begin to spread out all over the world in their language groups. And in Acts chapter 2, right, we see something similar happen. It says in verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So in Jerusalem, right now in this moment, you have the nations packed all into this city because of the harvest festival. And then what happens is that the Spirit of God comes and the disciples begin to speak all these different languages. However, this is where Pentecost is different from Babel. That instead of these languages being a judgment from God that brought confusion and separation, it's at Pentecost the languages became a blessing that led the disciples to share the good news of Jesus with the nations who were there all packed in the city so that they could understand the mighty works of God. At Babel, God brought the languages to divide the people and to slow down the building of man's kingdom. 
It's at Pentecost. God gives the Holy Spirit to unite the nations in a common faith in Jesus Christ to speed up the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And once again, that's exactly what Jesus says in Acts 1.8. That the Holy Spirit will come to you in power and you will be my witnesses not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not just in Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. The church is to be a movement of the gospel where it touches every language group. And what that means for us is that we too have all been given a language to share Jesus with others. Now it might be one language. It might not be spectacular. You might have a ton of languages. But it might be one language. We have that at least. Some of us might be bilingual, trilingual. How are you stewarding that? You know, maybe for some of us, God might be calling you to go into another culture to learn another language to make Christ known. Or for others of us, we just need to find our voice in a language that God has already given us. That maybe you can speak children's language, teens language. You know what I mean? Teens language. That's a whole different language, right? Business language, politics language, or sports language. Whatever language you have is a people group or tribe that you can share Jesus with. You know, my wife and I, uh, we have four boys, and we have come to learn parenting language. Greco, Chico, Similike, Pull-Ups, Pedialike, Splippy, Onesie, Swaddle, Baby Shark, Aquaphor, Teething, Tummy Time, Skin on Skin, Cradle Cap. Being a parent is like speaking another language. And some of you single folks are like, what did he just say right there, right? Sounded like gibberish. And my wife and I, we have seen this as an opportunity to reach others for Christ. You know, right now we actually have a neighbor who's expecting their first baby. And, we've, and, I've, and I've already talked with my neighbor more now about this coming baby than we have for the whole entire of last year. And it wasn't as though I didn't try to engage with him. But my neighbor, he loves working on cars and him and his wife love going to the nightclub scene. And this is all stuff that I have zero idea about. But when it comes to baby, babies, I know a thing or two. And it's this bridge and this language that God has given us to minister. And in time, my wife and I will share how our faith in Jesus has helped guide us and sustain us as parents. So I want to encourage everyone here that when you see the languages come across different people, yes, God wants us to go to the nations. But don't just think about that as the only language that you have or you have to gain. There are many other places and people groups that speak English that you can go into because you understand what's going on. Friends, how has God equipped you to reach different people groups? And here's the fourth work of the Spirit. He brings the harvest. Now we see this in Peter's sermon. And because of time, we don't have time to break down all 27 verses. But in later chapters, we're actually going to see many more sermons that Peter gives that will be similar in content and nature. And it's going to give us a much greater chance to dig deeper into Peter's sermon. But what I do want to highlight about Peter's message is the incredible response to the sermon. So what's happening here is that the people in the city are in awe and some are drawn to this. They're amazed, they're drawn to it, and others mock it. That some claim that the disciples must be drunk in verse 13 because everything sounded like gibberish to uneducated ears. You know, verse 14 and 16, Peter, the apostle, responds. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. 
For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's just 9 a.m. The bars aren't even open. It's not possible. But this is what is uttered by the prophet Joel. And what Peter does next is that he unpacks Joel chapter 2. And he says that everything that you are seeing right now from these disciples is what the prophet Joel said. The wind, the fire, the tongues, the prophesying. This is exactly as what God would say would happen. And this is all done for your salvation. Verse 20 and 21. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, the second coming of Christ here, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And who's this Lord that the prophet Joel is talking about? It's the Messiah, Jesus. And for the rest of the sermon, the apostle Peter shares the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he makes it abundantly clear to those who are listening that it is your sins, not the religious leader's sins. It's not the Roman government's sin. It is your sins that put Christ on the cross. So the people hear this and they respond. Verse 37 and 38. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 41 it says, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, something I want to point out here is that number 3,000 is not a random number, but a number that is meant to point us back to Scripture, that in the Jewish mind, once they heard the word 3,000, it would point their minds back to Scripture because the reason everyone is packed in Jerusalem right now is to celebrate the giving of God's law on Mount Sinai. And that number 3,000 connects back to that story of God giving the law. So what happened at Mount Sinai? This is what we read in Exodus 19. Let me just show it to you. Exodus 19. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a clin, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So God descends on Mount Sinai, and there is a fire, and the mountain trembles greatly. Sound familiar? Acts chapter 2, fire comes down on the disciples, and a rushing wind shakes the room. And as we read further in the story of the Sinai story, something terrible happens in Exodus chapter 32. That as Moses is meeting with God on top of the mountain, the people below begin to get impatient and they begin to construct an idol of a golden calf and start worshiping it. And God sees all of this and tells Moses that they will be judged. And in Exodus 32, 28, that's exactly what happens. Now let me show you the verse here. This is key. Exodus 32. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And on that day, about three thousand men of the people fell. Boom. Okay, boom, all right? You see that? 
on the day of Pentecost, the day to remember God giving the law on Mount Sinai, 3,000 people were struck down by the judgment of God. But now in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes down and instead of 3,000 people perishing, 3,000 people come to salvation. The Spirit of God changes everything. God gave his people the law, and clearly they could not obey the law, and they would always fall back into sin, into disobedience, into legalism, and thus they deserve God's judgment and wrath. But now the Spirit of God comes on the people of God so that they can walk in God's victory and experience salvation. What the law could not make us do, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. And let me just show you a little bit of what the Spirit does. The Spirit helps us to confess Jesus as Lord. The Spirit empowers us to serve God. The Spirit binds us together as the body of Christ. The Spirit helps us to pray. The Spirit intercedes for us with God the Father. The Spirit guides us. The Spirit helps us to live like Jesus. Where the law condemned souls, the Holy Spirit brought a harvest of souls. Do you see that? That this is a harvest festival and it's on this day God brings the harvest. The Spirit brought the transformation. The contrast between Mount Sinai and Pentecost is clear. God is the mover. God is the one doing the work of salvation. And this is good news because the mission of God does not depend on us. That this gospel movement has been happening for the last 2,000 years and God has been at work here in South Loop, in University Village, you know, in Armour Square, in Chinatown, right over here in Pilsen, in a Hyde Park. Long before we ever got here, God was at work and he'll still be at work after we're long gone because it is, this is not our mission, this is Jesus' mission. And this should deeply encourage us because if God is for us, who can be against us? If it is the Spirit who empowers, what barriers can stand in the way? If it's the Spirit that equips, what resources do we lack? If it's God's presence who is on us, what reason do we have to fear? None whatsoever. And when you think that you don't have what it takes to do this work, look at the guy who's giving the sermon right now, the Apostle Peter. Don't look at me, but look at Peter here, okay? Look at Peter. That this is a guy, he goes from being a denier of Jesus to being a rock star preacher of Jesus. And is this to Peter's credit? No, Peter has shown his true colors back when Jesus was being crucified. This is the Spirit's work. And the Spirit can do the same with all of us if we let him. God brings the harvest. Let me just close by asking you this. Do you want to be more like the church in Acts chapter 1? Some organization, some prayer, but empty of the Spirit? Or do you want to be part of a church that is Acts chapter 2? Where the life of God is so alive and so vibrant in the church that it flows out into the streets. That neighbors are rushing out to see what's going on. That we're living and talking, acting so differently from everyone else that we actually have to explain to everyone, we're not drunk. Hey, hey, you know, Park Community Church South Loop, we're not drunk. We're just alive in the spirit of God. Do you want to be a part of that kind of church? 
I sure hope so. Because if you don't want to be like the church in Acts chapter 2, why are you here? Why are you here? The Spirit has come upon you for this purpose. He is inviting us to join him in what he is doing in the city and world. The church is not a building to see. It's not a place to sit. It is a movement that we are to join. This is why the Spirit gave life to the church, is so that we can give this life to others. Amen.